predictive analysis is basically you predict, you, you do a simulation and modeling of what your rocket is going to do. And so you predict how it's going to behave, whether from a propulsion standpoint or an aerodynamic standpoint. So you, you predict it's even the trajectory of that rocket, how it's going to behave, what errors is going to give you. Like if, you know, if there are failures that you have to predict and how do you mitigate those failures, this is the stuff I really like. So you do a lot of the math and the science in order to predict what is the best design for this rocket, uh, wh whether it's an outer mold line, which is the, the way the shape of the rocket is going to be, or whether it's what kind of propulsion system should I use for this specific mission. But then obviously, as I grew and got into starting my own business and making rockets for my own business, you wear many hats. You're the engineer, you're the CEO of the company, you run the day to day, you try to find money, you try to create a business plan, all the stuff. So you wear many hats uh, as in my role. So that kind of gives you a flavor. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to the Mosho podcast. Uh, tonight we have Masha'il al-Shamamri. She is a, a super unique uh, person for reasons you are about to see because she has done things that uh, many of us have not. Mashad, welcome to the Mo Show podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank this you is very so, exciting. I really appreciate you making time and coming on the show. You uh, you do some crazy stuff, don't you? You are the first aerospace engineer, or let's say you are the first female aerospace engineer from the GCC. That's surprising. Like, I'm actually surprised. Why are you surprised? I, well, I was hoping it would have been nice to have a mentor, I would have to say. Um, but... Surprising that we are, you know, in 2022 and we're just getting our feet wet in the aerospace industry in the GCC. What is an aerospace engineer? Can I call you a rocket scientist because I'm yet to meet one? Can I officially say that I met the first rocket scientist? I think you are 100% correct. That's what we do. I made we it. make rockets. I made it. It's so funny because it's an analogy that people always use that, uh, you know, when something isn't too difficult, you know, I, I remember hearing it from teachers in days gone by, you know, Mo, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. <laughs> yeah. uh, illustrating just how complicated the field is. Um, my God, I don't even know where to start. Why did you decide to, 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 to pursue uh, a career there? How difficult was it? What's your day-to-day -day look like? Please feel free to fire away with any of those questions. So, I mean, aerospace engineering is, you know, it's two disciplines in one, aeronautical and astronautical. So aeronautical is anything that flies in Earth's atmosphere and astronautical anything that flies in space. So basically, whoever becomes an aerospace engineer could specialize either in aircraft, uh, helicopters, um, missiles, rockets. Well, I mean, rockets fall under um, missiles as well. And then anything that flies in space, like spacecraft, you know, satellites, uh, telescopes, and space-based telescopes, and mm -hmm. so forth. So then you you specialize. In my case, I was always interested in rockets, and the main reason why is when I was six, my mom took me to Ineza in Saudi Arabia, and uh, in the desert for Nafud in Ineza. And when I was there, it's so beautiful because you have such a clear access to the sky. So I was there, it was nighttime, it was a little bit cool, you hear camels moaning in the distance and so forth, and I looked up, and I was mesmerized by the high density of stars, because it's dark. 
So you see a very profound look of the stars and you're like, oh my God, what is this stuff? And you're a kid, you're like, well, what's up? Especially because some of them flicker differently and there's a higher density here than here. So I was very curious. And I kept asking everyone, I was like, what is this stuff? How is it up there? What does it do? What is it made out of? And I kept asking questions. Why does the moon follow me? Like, I just kept going on and on. Like, I really wanted to understand it. And I think that was a moment I had a calling because I could not let it go. So much so that my sister, Sara, who's a year and three months older than I am, was like, dude, like, stop asking these questions. I'm so tired. She's like, listen, I will explain it to you very simply. This is how these stars are up there. She got like a piece of paper, put some glue and threw some glitter, picked up the paper. And obviously the glitter got stuck on there. She's like, this is how God did it. Okay, let it go. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's brilliant. But that doesn't really tell me what it's made out of and where did this glitter come from? And so I was like, okay, the only way to understand what's in space is to go there. And the only way to go to space is to make rockets. So I was like, all right, I have to make the rockets in order to go in one, in order to go to space, to understand what's up there. And that was basically how it started. And it just, I just pursued it. I never let it go. How, how old are you when, when you had your first uh, like love affair with astronomy? Like how far do we six. have? Six years old. Mm -hmm. And since then you, you said... Um, this is something I want to pursue. This is what I want yeah, to do. Absolutely. I mean, it started off with me saying, I want to understand this stuff more. I need to have more answers and not getting enough answers to my questions. Then I was like, I need to know more. So I kept reading and trying to find out. And that's how I discovered, okay, well, you need rockets to go to space. And those rockets need people to make them. And then I want to be in that rocket to take me to space so I can see what's up there. That was the logic. And obviously I didn't know what I know now, but I knew this is the path I needed to go because I knew I want to go to space. I need to understand this stuff. And to go there, I need to make a rocket. So later on, I found out what that is, the major, which is aerospace engineering. And I was like, okay, that's exactly what I want to do. Mm -hmm. But I knew from six that there, that's my destination. This is amazing because not many people find their calling at that age. And you didn't give up until you, until yeah. you got there. Um, I think I was lucky. I think it was destiny. It is. I think it, that's why it's called a calling because it like seeks you out almost. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So um, just can you draw the path that uh, you took from the age of six up until what you do today, schooling, the journey, what did it look like? So I was very curious ever since I was a kid. And so I used to always break things apart in order to understand them because I was always wondering, how does this thing work? Like I used to break apart the VCR and then try to put it back together. If there's something broken, like a phone in the house, and back then there's no, you know, iPhones, it was just a landline. So if the phone breaks and then my mom's like trying to call the guy and I was really young, I'd be like, no, no, mom, give me a chance. And I would do it. I would open it up and I've never seen something like this, but then somehow, sometimes I actually end up fixing it. And then sometimes I actually end up really screwing it up. So it really depends. But my mom was very welcoming and allowing me to explore without necessarily the ramifications of if I break it, you know, I'm going to be punished. More like this kid is curious. Let me see where she goes with this. Mm -hmm. So she'd allow me, she'll give me that flexibility that even if I don't fix it, it's okay, like at least you had that curiosity. Mm -hmm. 
So that was me as a child, always opening things up, always trying to fix things. So my mom would actually put me in positions to be like, hey, come, this thing broke, can you fix it? And then if I can't fix it, then she'll call somebody who's a specialist and then they would fix it. And then I would like blow things up sometimes um, in the house by accident. Like I would plug in something because I put the circuit wrong and then it just like blows a fuse. Like 120, yeah. yeah. Or like, no, but a blow a fuse because I put the positive and the negative oh, and, okay. or so forth and yeah, yeah. in the wrong place. So I, my mom used to always, before she leaves the house, tell me like, please don't plug anything in that you just created. Wait for me to come home. And then I would wait, wait, and then I just can't because I really need to know if it works. And then I plug it in and I hear like, Pfft. and then all the lights, everything goes out in the house. I'm like, all right, it's time for me to go to sleep before my mom comes. <laughs> you were a little scientist, huh? Yeah. Even from a younger age. You know what I uh, picked up on right now is you telling me how um, much room your mom gave you to explore your curiosity. I think that's really good parenting. Absolutely. I think if my mom was very strict, if I broke it, then I have to like buy it or something, then it probably would have been more restrictive. But she gave me room, but she was mainly concerned for my safety when she was a little bit more strict. Mm -hmm. um, like I remember when I was in like uh, fifth grade, I got like all these, I don't know how I managed to get hydrochloric acid and all the stuff to try to like run experiments in my room. Like I didn't have a full lab with a hood or any of this stuff. And I was bragging about it in class, in a science class, because the teacher was gonna do this experiment, but I already did it at home with hydrochloric acid. And I was like, yeah, it's an exothermic reaction, blah, blah. And she's like, how do you know? I was like, well, I did the experiment at home. She's like, how did you get hydrochloric acid? I was like, yeah, I bought it from this place. <laughs> And she immediately called my mom and was like, uh, your daughter has chemicals that she shouldn't have in the house. Like, I don't know how this happened. So my mom raided my room, took everything and gave it to the school. I was like, mom, this stuff costs so much money. She's like, well, you know, you're not supposed to have it. And for a minute, it actually hurt me because the fumes were not good. And for like, a, I think a few months, I had to be on a, an inhaler because of whatever I did. But I was just so curious. And so there, my mom obviously was very upset, but and gave it to the school, which really upset me. But I figured from then on, I should keep my mouth shut <laughs> and not really brag about stuff I'm doing. May we all find what uh, gets us curious and and, and pursue it. Uh, again, it's it's just amazing to see how your mom said, you know, do your thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch you from afar because the opposite of that is what they call helicopter parenting and you know giving the yeah. kid the opportunity to explore to to see where he or where he or she's interests are and um god i just can't get over how you know blowing things up and the electricity in the house would <laughs> it's amazing may yeah. you all may, may we all you know continue to find curiosity uh deep within i hope so inshallah um so as far as uh, an aerospace engineer is concerned like in, in an elevator pitch, how would you describe the job description of an aerospace engineer? In my case, earlier on in my career, it was mainly a lot of designing and predictive analysis. That's one of the areas that I really like. Predictive analysis is basically you predict, you, you do a simulation and modeling of what your rocket is going to do. And so you predict how it's going to behave, whether from a propulsion standpoint or an aerodynamic standpoint. So you you predict it's even the trajectory of that rocket, how it's going to behave, what errors is going to give you. Like if 
you know, if there are failures that you have to predict and how do you mitigate those failures, this is the stuff I really like. The And then from, because when you're engineering, and the reason why it's called engineering, and yes, there's a design aspect of it, but that design is very informed with the science and the math that has to go into it. So you do a lot of the math and the science in order to predict what is the best um, design for this rocket. Uh, wh whether it's an outer mold line, which is the, the way the shape of the rocket is going to be, or whether it's what kind of propulsion system should I use for this specific mission. So these are areas that I really love. So that would be my day-to-day -day as a, you know, an engineer. Mm -hmm. But then obviously as I grew and got into starting my own business and making rockets for my own business, you wear many hats. You're the engineer, you're the CEO of the company, you run the day-to-day, -day, you try to find money, you try to create a business plan, all the stuff. So you wear many hats mm -hmm. uh, as in my role. So that kind of gives you a flavor. Yeah. There are a lot of people out there who would complain that their job is boring. I don't think you're in that group. No, it's it's definitely not boring. And as I mentioned to you, like one of the areas that I really like and that I honestly, time basically means nothing at that point, is when I start coding. To predict or to design a rocket when I start coding something, um, to figure out what how should my rocket look like, um, what the mission is going to be, for, like based on that mission, what the um, requirements for that rocket is going to be. That is the air, like time passes. It could be like I start at six in the morning, don't feel anything, and it's already like 3 a.m. I would be like, what? What happened to the time? You're just so submerged into yeah. the project that you're doing. Can you describe the process of testing prototypes and what goes into that? Uh, sure. I'll try to do like a very top level understanding for what happens. It depends what you're trying to test. Are you trying to test the propulsion system? Are you trying to test the structures? Are you trying to test the full-on system? And so forth. So if you're doing a structures test, you're going to obviously just do you, could do, you could do something like a hydrostatic test, which means that you pump water in to increase the pressure inside the, whether it's the chamber usually. And then you try to see if it can handle that plus a factor of safety 1.5, which is generally what we use for aerospace. So whatever loads you're experiencing uh, multiplied by 1.5, that gives you your factor of safety. You, you do those kind of tests. Uh, that's one option. You can do uh, destructive tests to try to understand what is the limit of the material for the application. And then one of the my favorite tests, which is a static test, basically you're trying to test the propulsion system. You hold the, ro the rocket down and you fire the engine to categorize the behavior of that rocket and whether that uh, propulsion system functions the way you designed it. So that's called a, a static test. Basically, you, you run the rocket mm -hmm. and there's a process, right? So if it's a new rocket and if it's a, you know, a solid rocket or a hybrid rocket or a liquid rocket, it, there's different ways to do it. But basically, you could do something like a horizontal test or a vertical test. It just really depends. Can you recall a circumstance where something went wrong? Uh, something always goes wrong. <laughs> but on a big scale. Yeah, I mean, if you have pressure pressurization issues, you could potentially blow something up. If, um, if you have, I mean, those are usually whenever you have pressure issues or if you have, for example, if you have a crack uh, somewhere, and usually when you, let's say the tanks or in the chamber, for example, if you have any leakage or something that, that can cause a, a severe uh, situation that can blow up. That's why usually when you make these tests, you're really far away from that rocket. And in, in something that probably resembles like a spacesuit. 
Well, no, you'd be really far away. A spacesuit is not going to help you. So, but in any protective gear? Well, you're you. So when where the rocket is, you are like really far away from. Okay, it. like completely. Like if there's a explosion, it's not going to reach. You're you. going to be fine. Yeah, okay. because you're either in a bunker. It depends where you're doing the test, Got right? It. And where do you do these tests? So where I did my, some of the tests is in the Mojave Desert okay, in California. California yeah. yeah, there's also in the U.S. They also do a lot of testing in White Sands. Mm -hmm. Uh, missile base, uh, but there they do a lot of the missile testing, the flight testing. Okay. But um, depends where you plan. Some people also will have certain areas where they do the testing. So it sometimes depends on the level of thrust that rocket has. So, so there's a lot of testing that happens in Utah for certain companies, and it just really depends. But yeah. you're usually really far away and secluded. Got it. And the higher the thrust, the and the more powerful the rocket, the further away. You need to be, but if you had like, if you're testing the ACS or the um, OMS system, which is the orbital maneuvering system, to see they're very tiny thrusts, you could do that in the backyard. I was going to ask a question um, that is quite open, open ended, and I was going to leave it till the end, but I'm actually going to plug it in right now. When do you feel most alive in life? Like when is Mashar the happiest that she's ever been and doesn't want to be anywhere else? Is is it during rocket testing times? I mean that certainly excites me, one hundred percent, and I would, and I do feel alive, and I would always be like jumping up, yes, let's do this. But obviously there's a process, and you need to be really focused. But yes, it's very exciting when it actually functions and it does exactly what you want it to do. Mm. Uh, the other place I would have to say is flying. When I'm flying, I am the most serene and happy. When I am scuba diving as well, I'm very happy. You're and disconnected in both those circumstances. From, Dis you're disconnected. There's no. There's no phones. Yeah. When you're scuba diving, it's you and your breath. Correct. It's uh, they. They're they're closely related. I feel. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very freeing to be up in the air looking down, especially when there's water underneath you. It's gorgeous. So and and I don't know. It just it's very it's a very happy place. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, I was asked at some point. You know, what do you do for mental health? Honestly, flying is is. One of the most, Truly. I, like I, you, you need to do it in order to really yeah. feel it, and it's, it's and especially if you have a passion for it, it's it's a that's it. Um, scuba diving for me when before I was because I started scuba diving really early in, in my life, and I loved it. I felt so comfortable, and I love fish and I love to explore because it's like you see new things all the time. Yeah. In flying, it feels freeing because you're you're like a bird just in the sky. Obviously, there's a lot of things that can go wrong but you're prepared for it and so you're ju I'm just happy there when we spoke on the phone you told me something that I don't think I'm ever going to forget you said that you you flew a plane before you drove a car yeah that's really correct that's a beauty of having a father that's a pilot is that and especially a father that's passionate about flying and so probably that like runs in the DNA um, my dad took us to fly Cessnas and Pipers when we were kids I was like I think six, the first time I flew with him. And there's an actual video that I posted on YouTube with me in my first flight actually attempting to fly. No way. And it was... I'm going to find that and put yeah, it on this episode. It's it's super cool. It's really old, the you video. You were six? Yeah, I was six. Okay. Um, like six and a half. Okay. And I, I was like so amazed. And you can see this kid like going nuts, screaming in excitement. <laughs> like, oh my God, this is so cool. And so I went a couple of times with my dad, and then and he let me take off, and then he let me pretend land 
he made it seem like I landed, but it really was him. I think, I think now, because now that I fly, I'm like, how would I land a plane at six? I wouldn't even know. So it's, it's super exciting. So I flew an airplane before I actually drove a car. That's crazy. What are some of the planes that you've flown? So I've generally flown a single and multi-engine planes, so small planes, like with a maximum takeoff of no more than 4,700 pounds. Okay. Ever flown one of those gliders? Those gliders are Yes, beautiful. I did, actually. No engine. No engine. Correct. It's just uh, So, yeah. Not it's even a propeller at the front, I don't think. Correct. It's super nice. I did that in Romania. Wow. Like, they took us somewhere in a mountain, and you just get released. Yeah. And it's just, it's so amazing, because you hear nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Whereas when you're flying a, a, a small plane, you hear the engine yeah. constantly. Yeah, yeah, you do. That's awesome. What can you tell us about um, what you saw at Area 51? I haven't been. <laughs> I really want to go though. Uh, I'm gonna. I was trying to get you to see, me. <laughs> but it's something that's always kept under wraps. Like if there has been an, an alien touchdown or evidence of, it's quickly put under wraps. Let's not let the public know about this. I mean, assuming this is true, assuming there was some. Uh, if there was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think if there. Let's go with the ca this idea hypothetical. or hypothetical yeah, yeah. situation yeah, yeah. that there was some contact i would understand keeping it under wraps because we as humans will always fear something that we don't know anything about so it'll cause mass hysteria so especially initially until people get used to it so yeah it makes sense that it would be under wraps uh, but i think there hasn't been contact so far because if there is it would be really nice to know what technologies they've used it's fascinating that to me was be like number one hey yeah. guys what are you guys up yeah, to yeah. where are you in the in the spectrum of technologies how, how can we you know work together to get this yeah yeah there's always uh, that fear that they're going to want to attack us but it's interesting you come at it from a different angle in saying uh, let's compare notes. You know, let's sit down and have yeah. a discussion. Because they must have traveled light years True. from us. Because we would have detected if there is any signal or any like radio frequency, we would have picked it up. But we haven't been able, at least yeah. to my knowledge. So with that, that means if they have something that doesn't emit anything and they were able to come to us and it's like large distances, so much so that we can't detect anything, we need to really compare notes because we need that technology. Totally. You hear a lot about uh, what SpaceX have been doing over the past few years. Elon Musk is, is a modern day genius or an ancient day genius. He's a genius personified. Are, are they the, do they do what NASA doesn't do? Are they the anti-NASA or how do you compare them in contrast to NASA in terms of missions? Well, I think certainly SpaceX benefits from NASA because NASA is the one that, that does a lot of the government contracting, right? Especially for space applications. So they kind of work together. There isn't, an, you, know, you know, saying NASA is not doing right. NASA is a government entity focused on specific things, and they've done a lot of amazing things. And they're the ones that basically push the envelope to get us where we are today. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to achieve things like the, the James Webb Space Telescope and the Hubble Space Telescope and so forth. And keep in mind, a lot of these big projects and big missions are collaborative efforts between NASA, ESA, and, and many global entities and countries that have certain specialties that feed into developing these technologies. So 
absolutely, SpaceX, what they did is they changed um, what I call, they transitioned the space industry from being many, the, many dollar signs and very um, focused, like there's limited companies doing this stuff and being subcontracted by the government to now really focused on bottom line. I want to achieve with an eye on cost and I want to push the envelope with these technologies and I want to f have investors put money in order to push the technology further and further. I want to make space accessible. I want to drive the prices down so much that I want to have so many clients commercial and military, as well as NASA payloads, which are civil payloads, to go to space. And I want to make it so affordable such that we go a lot more. So instead of doing like one launch a year or two launches a year or five launches a year, I want to do, you know, 30, 100, 150 to 200, that sort of thing. Every two weeks, I want to be able to launch. Every week, I want to be able to launch. When you do that, you drive the price down yeah. further. So they they definitely changed the market in aerospace. Uh, they focused more. They they were challenged because initially, the story is that uh, Elon Musk went to Russia to try to figure out a way to work together or to acquire technologies and be able to do it. And then they basically laughed at him. He was wondering why the prices were so high. And when he went to the Russians, they basically laughed in his face. And so it was a challenge to him. Like, oh, really? Well, I'll show you guys. And that's what he did. They started looking at what technologies were there. They developed the technology and they, they suffered because there's failure. This is not an easy field to be in. They failed three times with the Falcon 1 and then eventually got to something working. And as soon as they got to orbit, um, NASA signed with SpaceX. And I think they deserve it because they did a lot of hard work. And they took a risk. They took a very large risk. This is an industry that is, you know, high. It requires a lot of capital to get to that technology. And there's a lot of risks being taken. And you have to be accept failure and learn from it in order to improve and know that, you know, failure is not an if. It's a when I'm going to fail wow. and how do I get there. So absolutely. I mean, they definitely changed the market. Commercial space travel. Um, it, it's we, we just started that, right? Uh, in the next couple of years, you think it's going to be something that's going to be more accessible to those who wish to venture into space? Absolutely. That's have, the have whole you, point. Have you been? Have you been up? I, I mean, if I had a $250,000 lying around. Is sure. that how much it costs? Well, I mean, that's some of the numbers My that are out there. My God. Um, what, so what's the scope or what's the journey? Like you, you get to the... Do you get to exit the atmosphere? Do you go to the space station? What's so it depends on how high you go. So there's a whole spectrum of, or, you know, depends who you talk to, what is considered space. But usually it's 100 kilometers, right? So a lot of these companies um, are going, I think, a little bit below 100 kilometers. Uh, some are actually hitting the 100 kilometer because that's considered like where the Kármán line is. Because if you ask the Air Force, it's, you know, another number. And if you ask NASA, they, you know, depends on who you're talking to. So, but let's say for all intents and purposes, it's at hundred kilometers. So the higher you go in altitude, the longer you have in microgravity. So you have, you can actually experience the floating and stuff, and then you come back. So it, it's, they, so far, I think they've been doing close to, but less than hundred kilometers. To me, what I would like to do is to stay in orbit for a while or go to the moon 
um, eventually once the certain technologies that I would like to be developed, be developed, be able to go to Mars. And Mars is a whole different spectrum, a whole different game there. To the moon. Uh, no, there's moon and Mars. Yep. No, but Mars is a completely different spectrum compared to the moon. Yeah, because the moon you can get there in with a chemical rocket in three days. Three days. M Mars months. Nine months, eight, nine months. Well, it depends what technology you're using and when you're launching and all that. Because you, you're talking about um, orbits around the sun, right? So yeah, basically Mars and Earth become closest every 26 months. Okay. So you have to time it appropriately. So that and so you, you have a launch window in which you can actually, you, you try to leave Earth and try to head to Mars. And then depending on the technology you're using, it's all about the exhaust velocity that you can get or the delta Vs you can get. Um, exhaust velocity is basically as a result of the technologies that you're using. So in the best chemical rocket, you're going to get to 4.5 kilometers per second. In a nuclear rocket, you're going to get to 9 kilometers per second. In a electric propulsion, you can get up to 20 kilometers oh, per second, wow. which is super fast. Wow. The problem with the electric propulsion is very, and, it, and it's all a matter of efficiency. How much can I get out of that fuel, right? Mm -hmm. So in a when you compare a nuclear rocket to a chemical rocket, nuclear rocket is more efficient, almost twice as much as the um, chemical yeah. rocket, which is what we're used to seeing today. In, a, in an electric propulsion, you are very efficient. Uh, in other words, you can get to 20 kilometers per second, whereas in a, a nuclear, it's 9 kilometers per second and then 4.55 kilometers per second. And... Basically, you can get to actually, so the way we do it in, in rocketry is we use a specific impulse as a measure. Basically, um, how much pounds of thrust can I get out of one pound of fuel? Okay. okay. So in, just to give you the numbers, so the higher the seconds, the higher the amount of fuel you're, like the, uh, the more efficient the rocket is. So in a, in a chemical rocket, you can get, if you're lucky, to four like 420, 450 um, seconds, four, oh, sorry, 420, 460 seconds or 50 seconds. Whereas in a, a, a nuclear rocket, you can get, in, get to 900 seconds, so double that of a chemical rocket. And then in an electropropulsion, you can get up to 3,000. In some cases, there's predictions to you can even get to 10,000 or 7,000 and so forth. But there's to get there, it, it takes time. The problem with the electric propulsion would be basically the, let me know if I'm going too deep. No, okay. please continue. Okay, so Fascinating. In, a, in, a, in an electric propulsion, it takes a long time for you to get to that 20 kilometers per second exhaust velocity. So they're not really the ideal case, the, the ideal technology to use if you are trying to take a human somewhere. It's going to take too long for you to get there. So the way I usually describe this is if you have a car and I tell you you need to go a thousand kilometers somewhere and you have a car that can go from, assuming you can maintain that speed, right? Because obviously if you go that speed on a highway, you're going to get a ticket. But if you can go from zero to, and barring any um, sonic issues and so forth. But if you can go from zero, if I tell you you have a car that can go from zero to 120 in one second or a car that can go from zero to 120 in six seconds versus a car that can go from zero to a thousand kilometers per second in like, but it takes you like uh, three months mm -hmm. to get to a thousand kilometers per second. Mm -hmm. Which one are you going to use? Mm -hmm. You know? So maybe you can take the one in the middle, which can go to 120 in six seconds, but then the first one can go from 
zero to maybe 90 kilometers per second and take like one second. I obviously would go with the one that's like 120 in the six seconds, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's basically describing chemical, nuclear, and electric propulsion. So it's not really um, the, the ideal one to just use for taking humans. Now the question becomes, can I have a hybrid system in which I use a nuclear rocket and or a chemical rocket, a nuclear rocket, and maybe use the the electric propulsion to do maneuvers of some sort. Mm -hmm. And the question is, could you do that? Yes, you can. It just depends, you know, you have to map it properly. But also keep in mind that the more stuff you have, the heavier the system becomes. How far are we from putting a human on Mars? That's a very... We have touched down that rover Correct. a couple of years ago. We have Unmanned touched down. vehicles. Unmanned, yeah. Yes, but when you talk about human missions, here's the, and this is a, a subject that's really near and dear to my heart because that's, you know, what I've done for my research when I was in college as well as, you know, other areas. Um, when you plan a mission, you're planning a whole mission to go to Mars. We talked about the trajectory aspect, right? So you have to align it properly. Then you have to decide, am I going to do a long stay on Mars or am I going to do a short stay on Mars? When you do a short stay on Mars, let's say you want to stay 30 days or 90 days, you have a problem of coming back or going, depends on when you plan that launch. Because you're going to have one leg of that mission have the shortest time and then one leg having the longest time that also may require a Venus flyby in order for you to reduce the amount of fuel that you need by using the gravity of Venus to get to Earth. And that's also another issue of radiation because you get closer to the sun. And that's also poses a problem to your uh, astronauts. So, so you, you have to plan the mission. So I, I think it depends on the technology we're going to use. I think I've always been an advocate for nuclear thermal propulsion to take humans to Mars. The technology is still not where it's, it's supposed to be. There's a lot of significant work that happened in the 1970s um, and 1960s with the NERVA rover program. Uh, this is in the U.S., and there was also a program happening in Russia uh, with nuclear thermal propulsion. I think it's very promising technologies. Uh, the problem is the fact that you have to use nuclear material, and then with nuclear proliferation issues and not using certain stuff like that, it becomes a little bit um, political and all this, and then hauling something yeah. <laughs> that is nuclear in space and how what the public perception is going to be. But as a technology, it's very promising. So if we could get it done, that certainly will expedite our ability to go to Mars. Now, there's some talk about using chemical rockets uh, for this type of mission. Keep in mind the issue I mentioned earlier, which is the whole 4.5 uh, uh, kilometers per second. When you're trying, the, the faster you go, because why do you want to get to Mars fast? is the question when you have humans. Because you have cosmic radiation, you have um, microgravity situations going on. The human body is going to take a toll because we're not used to being in microgravity. We're not used to being in, a, in an environment where we get radiated, radiated constantly. So those are things that we have to consider for the whole mission. So then let's say we iron all this out. We still have to do several missions that are very heavy payloads to prepare for the humans to land on Mars, like food, uh, 
li uh, living space, like a habitat and Just so forth. Logistics, yeah. Yeah, like maybe 3D printing habitats. All this stuff has to happen before. So you have to plan way ahead, like years before they can arrive. And then the amount of stuff that you haul there is going to be like, it can require seven, eight missions before you can send the humans there. So, and then you have to deal with the whole, you know, when am I going to send them? You know, it, it can take, with a, with a nuclear rocket, it can take you three to, to four months to get to Mars. And then I would prefer personally, let's say you tell me, I'll take you to Mars and we'll, you're going to go there, no problem. What mission would you do? I would be like, okay, I'd rather do a long stay on Mars because then I can fly, assuming we have the nuclear technology, if in three to four months, get to Mars, stay on Mars for two, for two years, basically. Or for back. one, sorry, two, like 1.9 <clears throat> years on Earth, two year, one year on Mars, and, and then come back. In three to four in months. In three to four months. Yeah, because that's when it's closest Correct. again. You really thought about this. I mean, that's what I get, that's what some companies consult me for. And you do this? I would do it, absolutely. With the right technology, yes. I mean, I would do it even with a chemical rocket. I'd be like, all right, let's go. And you'd be gone for two and a half, close to three Earth years? Yeah, it can, it can, depends. It can actually take, um, yeah, about like almost, let's say three to four years. That's a, that's a commitment. That's fine with me. But look at amount, the amount of science we're going to be able to do. Look at, and the amount of information and the amount of learning we'll be able to do. You'd go where no one ever has been before. You know, it's important. Has water been discovered there? So there's, there's ice on, there's uh, ice. yeah. So uh, we could potentially use that and extract hydrogen. But the temperatures aren't uh, favorable for no. humankind. And also you're, you don't have a magnetic field. So you're, you're, you know, like you, you've heard of the Aurora Borealis and the Aurora Australis, yes. right? And you know yeah. how that works, right? Don't know how it works, but I definitely heard of it. In okay. My... So you know about solar winds. Yeah. Right. You have a flare from the sun and goes whoosh, mm -hmm. and, and then comes towards Earth and then eventually goes towards Mars and so forth. So that has a lot of um, highly charged particles coming in. And then you, the reason you see the Aurora Borealis and the Aurora Australis is because we have a magnetic field which protects us from this stuff, which can actually cause severe elevated amount of radiation on Earth, but we're protected by the magnetic field. But because of the North and South Pole, they're weak points, they're entry points for these charged particles. When they come into the atmosphere, they basically react with the air. And that's when you see, you remember in physics, they, you know, you have the atom and then the electrons, when they jump up and jump down, releases photons. That's yeah. what you're seeing. So that energy that's released, you see it as light. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see the aurora borealis and the aurora australis. On Mars, you don't have that protection. So that charged particles would just be like, bloop, into your body. So you need to protect your astronauts from the radiation. So you would have to plan your missions. You have to have... Um, ways to protect the people, whether have water to protect them because uh, hydrogen uh, can help you there, I mean, or s different other materials that you could use. So it it's important to think about these things. In theory, was the movie The Martian possible, realistic, in theory? I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. There's a, uh, some parts that could have some realistic aspects, and I think some parts that 
maybe are far out there, but I, I cannot remember the details of the movie, to be honest. It was up there growing, growing yeah, stuff. Yeah, the, the nice thing about some of these movies is they do have some element of reality and science in them. Um, but then they also have to make it a story, mm -hmm. so it gets interesting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are some elements that seem true, and like I said, some that are mm -hmm. extrapolated. Yeah, for the sake of Hollywood yeah. and, you know, making it a, a, a watchable movie. Why is there so much debate over whether the moon landing was real or not? And where do you stand on that subject? Obviously, we landed. The problem is lack of um, information. So people, like when I ask the people that are like, oh, the moon landing never happened. I'm like, how many times did we land on the moon? And they're like, one time. I was like, nope. <laughs> That's Four or five? Six. Six, six times. times. So... Lack of information, lack of exposure to data. Um, so, and I've done episodes on those on my YouTube channel where I'm like, okay, guys, first of all, this is the Apollo program. And these are the missions that happened. These are how many times we landed. And then they tell you about the whole flag situation. Oh, you know, the flag. Um, there's no wind on the moon. Therefore, why was it moving? And I'm like, okay, there's no resistance either because there is no air there. So therefore the dissipation there's drag basically which kind of dissipates the whatever thing like if you if there was drag it would dissipate as you force something in and so i discussed that as you know they're like oh it's hollywood there's no shadow i don't like there's a lot of stuff that yeah, they shadows. come up with and i'm like guys come on and i've done episodes on those it's it's ridiculous i think we why <laughs> would you spend I think it's $25.4 billion on an Apollo program, just the Apollo program, to try to send man to the moon and then just because you want to do a photo op. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, it terrifies me. Well, when I go on a plane, I'm, you know, I'm scared until we land because of turbulence and all that. Uh, it would terrify me to go to space, but I would for one reason, just to see how insignificant we are in in comparison to the grand scheme of things. I think it'll make you, it'll give you a different perspective on life. What I've heard from a lot of astronauts that have been, and hopefully I can tell you my perspective soon Inshallah. when I go up there, um, is it's humbling because you realize you are so tiny um, and we are all one. You don't see countries, you don't see borders, you see one earth. And I think that is where the most profound statement is, is like we are just one body of, you know, organisms. Yeah, nothingness in comparison. You know, it doesn't matter where I'm from. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what your religion is. You are just a human. And, and there are no borders. We are all just Earth. I think if there was like a, a queue system where one by one each person on this planet goes up to out of the atmosphere, so you get to see how small earth is and you get to see the ball that we are uh, so every person on the planet if they were to go into space see us come down the world would be a different place uh, absolutely i think their perspective would perspective changes. yeah you, you, you know you see, and then and just to think that wars really i mean here we are in in, a, in an endless sphere of infinity and we are fighting each other it, it will change your approach on maybe even how you handle your day-to-day -day affairs. I think so. Absolutely. It is, uh, it's, 
it's a miracle how it all came together. Like one of the reasons why people are so curious in astronomy because it's it's never ending, open ended questions. We we know only five percent, and that's I think generous. No, no, yeah, that's being yeah. generous. Yeah, generous, kind of like the ocean, um, where I think it was yeah five five percent of it is uh, is mapped. We don't know much about the other ninety five percent. That's why we struggle to find the the Malaysian plane that disappeared. I mean, that's that a different me, story. I, I, st I still stay up at night thinking of that plane. Yeah, I mean, that's a different story altogether. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns on Earth, and there's definitely deeper questions in space. Yeah, Infin yeah. profoundly deeper questions. Do you have any fears? What's your worst fear? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. Surely not turbulence. No, not turbulence. <laughs> Definitely not turbulence. Um, Lucky you. Let's see. Fears. Hmm. But not having a passion, I think that would be very scary for me. Good one. Passion slash goal. Yeah. No, like a, a purpose, a, a goal to achieve, uh, something that drives you to get there. I think if I wake up one day and I'm like, oh. I don't want, I no longer want to do anything. That's problematic. That would be scared. Well, lucky you, Intiani, mashallah, from the age of six, you were missile locked on wanting to, you know, study space, uh, being an aerospace engineer, being uh, someone who is so curious with what's out there beyond our uh, pale blue dot, as, as they say. Um, and uh, and you kind of found what your passion was from that age at six. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the nice thing about having something like this, it, it constantly grows. So what you thought was, okay, that's the goal. Um, there's many different milestones along the way that you have to achieve. And then once you get to those milestones, you start to see even further. So you can never, once you've achieved let's say whatever goal you set in front of you, it never stops. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, what's next? There's gotta be something next. Yeah. So, and sometimes it's a little exhausting to be honest. You're like, oh, I just wanna take a minute and just chill. And you're like, no, I can't take a minute. We gotta go. What do you do to relax from the constant information that you have to process in your, in your field or in your career? Like what do you do to, to switch off from it all? Fly, because when I'm flying, I'm just thinking of this moment. I'm you're, not, you're not processing stuff. Your brain isn't working. You're just kind of an autopilot. Well, I mean, I obviously have to process stuff. I have to look for other traffic if I'm flying VFR yeah. and so forth. But it just, you're so in that moment that you're not thinking, okay, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? What's my task there? What, what, am I, what are my goals? No, your, your goal right now is just to fly this plane, enjoy the flight, and then land safely. And that's it. And, and try not to crash with other planes. Is landing a lot more sophisticated than taking off more difficult? Um, yeah, I mean, it requires a lot more concentration. Uh, it requires a lot of more, more feeling the plane. Uh, taking off is easy. The landing is a little bit harder. But, you know, once you are able to be one with the plane, you, you should be fine. Is there something out there that people don't know about you? Um. I'm sure there's plenty that they don't know about me. Can you share something with us? Um, I don't know. What do you want to know? S something about you that uh, 
that that perhaps even those who know you don't 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 know this about you um let me think uh that's difficult like my obviously my sister sara will know everything there is to know about me i think one thing that maybe people don't know is that um one of the things i've always wanted to do is um be a voice over for cartoons <laughs> There you go. That's yeah. something I wanted to. I, I, I like it because <laughs> when I was a kid, I could do different voices mm. and I and different characters. Get into different characters. Obviously, not. I I didn't spend a lot of time, but I would do like different weird things with my voice that it would. I like that stuff, and so cartoons have always been something that's cool. What was your, what was your favorite growing up? Cartoon. Oh, there's so many. Let's see, Ren and Stimpy, wow, definitely that took me back. Yeah. Um, I definitely liked Scooby Doo. Mm -hmm. I also liked um, Mighty Mouse. He was amazing. Yeah, he was Mickey Mouse 2.0. Yeah. Uh, Tom and Jerry, yeah. Bugs Bunny. Obviously, those are classics. Mm -hmm. um, what else is that? Uh, uh, Grandizer. Grandizer, our, our local yeah. hero. My favorite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Adnan Walina. I think it's the where there's like a a nuclear disaster on Earth. Interesting. You you've seen Adnan? No, Walina. no, no, no. Oh, you have to. I Ad have not. Absi is my favorite character in Adnan Walina because he's funny looking. I'll look it up on YouTube. Yeah. Do you ever have uh, youngsters come up to you asking you about uh, how you got to where you are and, uh, and and what would you say to them? Yeah, actually, it's funny because I think kids think I'm their age no matter how old they think I am. Like they literally, when they see me, they see a child. And so they relate immediately. So it's kind of nice. Because like all the kids in my family are very attracted to me, thinking like I'm their age. They don't see me as their like aunt. No, they're like, oh no, it's, it's just mishmish. I'm like, okay, great. You have you have that about you. You're very young at heart. Yeah. So I think I'm a six year old at heart all the time. <laughs> so when they ask me, I try to obviously make it very simple for them and try to make them excited about the prospect of what's up there, what we can do. Um, you know, some of the try to explain to them like. You know, well, the ones that are a little bit older, like explaining like some of the technologies we developed for space actually have uses on Earth and so forth. But yeah, I try to feed their curiosity because what you want to do as an adult is plant a seed of that curiosity in each child so that they become more and more curious. So what I used to do when I was um, doing like stuff with a boys and girls club after work, we would get like kits, like model rockets and have them put it together. And then the next week, um, and then tell them like a little bit of the mathematics as to how to do it, like how to predict how high it will be, like just regular geometry. And we would go the next week to have them fly it. And it, that look in their eye when they press the button and they see the rocket flying. And then the, and then everybody's excited. As, oh, I said it's going to go 100 feet and it went like 120. Oh, my God. And they get super excited. That, to me, is what is critical because these little Kids are going to be the future scientists, the future developers, the future engineers, and so forth. So even if they're not necessarily going to pursue um, engineering, you plant that seed of, I want to know how things work. And it could be like this person becomes a doctor. I don't know. Yeah. But you excite them about science, technology, engineering, and math. And that, to me, is extremely critical. I think on, on, on some level, every kid is interested in rockets. Yes. Just 
you eventually grow out of it. But on some level, in the beginning, when you're, you know, two, three-year-old, I, I have a four-year-old, and one of his favorite toys is is, is a rocket. Um, and, uh, you know, they have that. that, that I want to see a, a, an action, for, a reaction from an action that I do. I press the button, yeah. boom, that thing goes up. Um, I just had a field day. Yeah, exactly. It's like that. I've achieved something. Yeah, yeah like yeah. they can see it in like in real time. Totally, totally, totally. Uh, in the beginning, we spoke about how unique of a field that you are in, and for sure, you have sparked interest for these young Saudi Arab females or anyone in the world uh, who, uh, who who always had an interest in space and and wanted to perhaps pursue a, a career in space, but never knew how to go about it. Uh, what can you say to those who are interested and want to reach out and uh, and what can you do for them? So I've started a lot of the social media stuff uh, mainly to try to leave a footprint because one day I'm going to die, right? And I would want to leave the door open a little bit for people to enter very um uh, very strongly through that door. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, your, in your first question about being the first female aerospace engineer, you know, and I said that's kind of surprising. That's what I want mm -hmm. to be the mentality once I leave Earth is that that is not surprising, that there's plenty of women in this field and there's plenty of men in this field and there's a lot being done in Saudi and in the GCC regarding space. That is my hope, is that I have opened the door slightly so that people can walk through it so much and it becomes norm to, to have like Saudi rockets, Saudi spacecraft, Saudi technologies being like at the forefront of everything. Uh, because remember, we are we, we're Arabs and a lot of the science came from, you know, the Islamic, um, the Islamic empire. So I would like to bring that back. We need to contribute like we did back in the day. And so... Back in the day, I heard that uh, they used to navigate their ways through the desert by looking up. Exactly. That's so a lot of the data we have and a lot of the names of the stars that we have and so forth is thanks to the work of the scientists during the Islamic empire. And a lot of the math and a lot of the calculations and a lot of the data that they received in order to even understand that we are a heliocentric um, system and not a geocentric system. All the data was supplied by scientists under the Islamic empire. So I would like for us to now be the, like the renaissance of us coming back to try to basically reclaim our footprint in the scientific community, reclaim our um, footprint in, in advancing technologies because we used to advance technologies yeah. back then. So we certainly have the capability, we have the brain, the brain matter and the and the intelligence, we just need to be able to offer these young people the opportunity. So the main reason I took to social media is to try to enlighten people, to, to give back and be able to tell them, listen, if I could do it, you can do it. Listen, this stuff is there. Uh, space is out there. This is super interesting. Uh, basically plant the seed of curiosity in every single person that can watch my channel or whether on YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, you name it, or some podcast or whatever it is. Like, that's the whole point is that I want people to be like, oh my God, this is something very interesting. I need to read a little bit more about it. This is how she did it. Maybe this is how I want to do it. So to me, that is the most important is to leave Earth with a huge amount of people entering this field that it becomes normal 
to see a lot of aerospace engineers that, you know, in the world and on CNN and wherever it is that you get your news or NPR or, or you know, Sharq al-Awsat or whatever, it becomes very normal. Yeah. Saudi has achieved, uh, Emirates has achieved, all the stuff, uh, GCC countries collaborate on the new, you know, large mission that cost, I don't know, $20 billion, let's say, uh, to try to understand the universe. Uh, to maybe develop the technologies that go and mine asteroids. Why not? Th that should be our, we are capable. We just need the opportunity. And I'm hoping that this platform uh, assists you in your quest to find people uh, who can uh, follow your footsteps and, uh, and continue to do what you do and learn from you uh, because uh, it's, uh, it's, it's it's a profound field that can you know really make an impact on people, um, and uh, and there aren't that many. And you know, I'm 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 hoping that I can help you in your recruitment quest of that. I mean, I, I mean, I, I hope that is that certainly sheds light. I'm really um, happy for this opportunity, and I hope it resonates with the audience. Uh, I want to thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. I did. This was really fun. Thank uh, you so much. Amazing. Thank you for taking the time. And we'll be rooting for you. Hopefully in the not too distant future, we can see and hear of you uh, going on a mission to Mars. Inshallah. Uh, nothing will make, will make us happier than that. You representing uh, the Saudi, the Arab world in the way that you do. And uh, Wallah will be praying for you and rooting for you. Thank you. I'd be honored. Yes. Thanks so much, Mashaad. Thank you. Thank you.